Welcome to Delivering More Together, the podcast brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, VHA Innovation Ecosystem. I'm Bryn Cole. Now, if your first thought is that a podcast hosted by the federal government sounds like a total snooze fest, I challenge you to stay for a listen and let us change your mind. Here, we'll open your eyes, well, ears, to the groundbreaking innovation underway at VHA and how through innovation and collaboration, VHA is exceeding expectations, restoring hope, and building trust within the veteran community. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Carolyn Clancy, the Dean of VHA. Dr. Clancy leads discovery, education, and affiliate networks at VHA. And in this interview, you'll hear how she has learned through sharing with America's allies, led VHA twice, and her top secret vacation destination. Hi, my name is Blake Henderson. Administration. Uh, I'm super excited to be uh, joined today by uh, a leader uh, within the American healthcare industry uh, and along and a leader uh, here at the Veterans Health Administration, Dr. Carolyn Clancy. Um, Delighted, Blake, and I'm very excited about being here today, too. Um, so I currently serve as VA's Dean. Now, Dean is an acronym for our entire office, which stands for Discovery, Education, and Affiliate Networks. It's just about two years old, and it initially marked the beginning of um, the realignment and modernization of VHA central office. Um, and we have been in the vanguard of VA's transformation ever since we were created two years ago. Our mission is to improve veterans' well-being through discovery, education, and innovation. And the VHA innovation ecosystem, thankfully, is itself a part of DEAN, uh, along with the Office of Academic Affiliations, the Office of Research and Development, and most recently, the Office of Community Engagement. So a very, very exciting place to work, and it's hard not to be excited about coming into work every day uh, to uh, interact with very, very creative people. Um, in my role, I get to really focus on collaboration. So for example, right now, I've been focused on knowledge management. Uh, how does the work that the innovation ecosystem does relate to what we do in research, relate to what other program offices do in a very closely aligned space? Um, and in the context of the current pandemic, it's been just wildly exciting since the beginning. And I wasn't sure that would actually happen, but it has been really terrific. The research people coming right out of the gate actually launched a number of very important initiatives, both independently from VA, but also in close collaboration with the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and so forth. And the innovation ecosystem was giving them a run for their money. Um, also leaping to figure out what should we be doing in terms of best practices that were emerging. How was it that we could get vital evidence-based information to clinicians on the front lines who, after all, were now uh, sporting all kinds of new personal protective equipment and didn't actually have the leisure to whip out uh, iPhones or other handheld devices uh, very easily without contaminating everything. Um, 
and they launched 3D printing and the list goes on and on. So a very, very exciting place to work. Thank you, Dr. Clancy. Um, you have some very diverse programmatic elements under under your organization, you know, between, um, you know, the innovation ecosystem, um, academic affiliations, and, and then research. Can you talk a little bit um, about your role leading this this office and how you go about uh, trying to, to find the synergies uh, between these three uh, capabilities of the organization? Sure, that's really a phenomenal question. Um, when we first created this office, to be honest, it was a little bit like having discrete components. People were friendly and collegial, but um, synergy wasn't something that happened overnight. Uh, one year and a little bit more in, we had a retreat and I knew that we were home free because um, at the breaks, people from different components were eagerly having conversations and figuring out um, how does what I'm doing relate to what you're doing and how could we actually collaborate and make it even better. Um, and that now is uh, sort of like wallpaper for the group, which is really, really phenomenal. Um, so, which is what I had envisioned from the get-go, but it doesn't happen overnight. And it's not something that a person can do, right? Uh, a leader can set the tone and the expectation and, you know, do things like have senior leader meetings periodically and so forth. But actually making sure that the dots are connected is something that uh, all of the leaders have to be involved with. And frankly, our colleagues out in the field, I believe, are way ahead of us on this, right? They actually understand how our group can help them accelerate uh, solutions that they've developed, which is why the work uh, in diffusion of excellence is so important. Yeah, I, I, speaking for myself, I've also been uh, pleasantly surprised at, you know, I, I feel like the interplay, especially between the innovation ecosystem and research is um, is really increasing and it's, it's getting a little more um, uh, sophisticated and uh, a lot of uh, great partners over there uh, in research and, and we're seeing I think more things move uh, you know from the, the the core research pipeline out to innovation ecosystem uh, to gain further adoption and then we're seeing things frankly that have been kind of built out in the wild and, and are heavy on, on application um, but don't really have as much perhaps uh, rigorous uh, evaluation or review. We're seeing those kind of go back over to the research realm. So I think that's a really kind of healthy interplay personally. Um, no, so I think it's absolutely terrific. And frankly, in uh, the work that you lead, like uh, Diffusion of Excellence, there was a, an initial thought that maybe we just find these excellent best practices and give everyone a gold star that has come up with a superlative idea that they've actually managed to uh, collaborate with other facilities on as well. Um, but that would just make spread happen like crazy. And early on, leaders of that work recognized that we had to be honest and make sure that what we were actually uh, identifying like project happen um, actually had some rigorous evidence behind it. So. It's both a bottoms up as well as a top down approach, which I think is where the magic is. 
Great. All right. That leads uh, really well into our next uh, topic. And, and that is really on, you know, our theme this year for uh, innovation experience. Um, it, it's really delivering more together. Uh, can you talk about how uh, Dean uh, can help demonstrate that innovation is best when we work together? Um, well, you know, um, just to give you, keep it very, very simple. The reason uh, the Veterans Health Administration has a research enterprise is really founded on the premise that if you had clinicians leading this research who also see patients, that that would bring a certain urgency to the research that was funded and would also accelerate the translation pipeline uh, from the time research is funded to actually when it's benefiting veterans. And that has been a uh, time-honored tradition. Um, the innovation ecosystem actually brings a great sense of this is exciting. Look what I can do right now, uh, which I think is phenomenal for the research teams. So the theme of delivering more together um, to me just suggests a very big tent approach to this as opposed to, wow, our program office um, supported the development of this important activity or initiative and it's ours. That's ridiculous, right? You want more and more people to feel like they're part of the solution. And that's what the innovation ecosystem has really, really excelled at. It gets people very excited. When I've gone to the in-person conferences, I mean, people are bouncing off walls because they're meeting colleagues. Earlier today, we actually had a conversation with someone who found his current job there. I told him that perhaps we should be exploring royalties. Uh, for this kind of thing, but uh, very, very exciting. I, I agree. I, just speaking for myself, you know, and um, our office, uh, you know, we sometimes see things come to us that have, have already kind of gone through the, the research pipeline and, um, and we're frankly just kind of overjoyed when we, we get those kind of uh, interventions and practices because, you know, they've already been thoroughly reviewed thoroughly thought through. Uh, sometimes there's randomized controlled trials that have already been completed. Um, and so we, we kind of sometimes get to almost, feels like we rediscover them. And, um, you know, and the innovators on the research side are, are given a, a fresh platform to showcase their work. Um, and so I think that's worked out really well for all parties. Well, you know, um, if there's one message I would leave with listeners is how much in this country writ large and probably globally, we have underestimated the important of that importance of the translation function, right? Just because you have the right answer doesn't mean that people read the article and say, oh, by gosh, I think I'll change my practice. Um, the work of the innovation ecosystem with collaborating with people on the front lines actually helps people realize step by step what it takes to execute this. You know, if I come up with a new solution, which is a single dose medication uh, that cures something for which we've never even had a treatment, that's not a hard sell. That's easy, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's when the solutions are much more like collaborative strategies. So one 
famous example in healthcare is um, central line bloodstream infections. By the way, a 25% mortality rate if you get one of these, right? Because we're putting very big lines into very large arteries or veins, rather, which means if they get uh, contaminated with bacteria, you can make someone very sick rapidly. Um, so actually figuring out how to reduce infections. And by the way, we tried for decades to do this. Um, turned out to be really, really challenging. What made it work was figuring out what did people on the front lines need to do to be able to take this information and make it part of their work. Well, they needed some very easy things. Easy metrics to stay on track. They needed to get feedback on a regular basis. And when they did and they followed the protocol, what they found out was that infections dropped precipitously. Um, that didn't come from the innovation ecosystem. It came from my prior uh, position. But nonetheless, it has been a home run for healthcare. That's what the innovation ecosystem is building. And we, I believe, have focused in this country too much on just the discovery piece without actually focusing on the application and figuring out how do you tailor it to work in a small VA versus a very large academically oriented VA and so forth. Absolutely. Uh, translation is, is absolutely critical to uh, more broad scale adoption. So, you know, Dr. Clancy, I've uh, had the good fortune of, of being able to work with you uh, really the past 18 months, two years, uh, much more closely. I've been able to watch you uh, from afar uh, prior to that, you know, leading our, our healthcare system. And so it's been really neat to, to actually get to know you. Uh, and so not having seen you in, you know, really six months time or so with, uh, with coronavirus uh, and whatnot, uh, let me just ask, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing quite well, thank you. I have been coming in uh, from the beginning. Um, first of all, I have a relatively short commute. Um, secondly, I don't love working at home. Um, and mostly I thought I would learn more if I was here, particularly on the operations side. You know, in theory, I could be calling into these meetings and watching the slides, but it's the uh, conversation between the lines where you learn a great deal. And most of the operations leaders have been in here all the time. And I have learned a ton, which has been really uh, very, very exciting. Um, fortunately, even though I come from a very large extended family, to the best of my knowledge, exactly one person has been infected with this virus. Uh, my nephew, just before he was graduating from college. And incredibly enough, his biggest uh, challenge for about three weeks was he couldn't smell. But other than that, was not sick sick. Um, his whole family, he's one of four, learned a lot about what it really means to quarantine and so forth. But uh, we have been very, very lucky that way. Well, I'm glad to hear your nephew is, is okay. It is interesting that, you know, he did experience that symptom of, of loss of smell because that's something you hear a lot about. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm very, yeah. interestingly, it was something that emerged from the ground up, right? This was not um, a research study. And the initial symptoms that everyone said in the very, very early phase of this pandemic you know, even if you thought you might have this weird new virus, if you hadn't been near someone 
uh, from China or who, you know, had gone to a conference there or something, there was no way you were going to get a test. And the inability to smell wasn't even on anybody's list. That emerged when some ear, nose, and throat doctors started noticing it. But, you know, so it, it just shows that you have to learn from many different points when something brand new is emerging. Absolutely. And it was a good one to pick up on because it's so distinctive. You know, I yeah. feel like as, as an individual, you'd be like, you know, I'm not really smelling or tasting anything. Um, so, you know, it is hard to uh, have a, a conversation about healthcare without, um, you know, uh, addressing coronavirus in some ways. Uh, I know you've, you know, you've seen a lot of different uh, changes and trends in healthcare. I was wondering if, if you might uh, talk about any of the potential silver linings um, in healthcare that, that you think we might see that, that might kind of ripple on uh, after this. You know, like, I am so glad you asked that question because right now my uh, intense personal passion is trying to figure out and figure out how Dean can be part of the solution of setting the stage for what does uh, healthcare delivery look like post-pandemic. It's fascinating because if you do much reading and, you know, if you are a subscriber of medical journals, let me just tell you, you are never lonely because they're all beaming information all the time. They're getting lots and lots of submissions. And to make sure that you don't miss anything, you get it like three or four times. Um, So you could literally not ever sleep again and not be caught up. But what's fascinating is in the context of a public health emergency and relaxation about rules, Uh, rules for reimbursement for uh, virtual care. Um, Many clinicians and systems are really discovering just how well that can work for patients. Now, I think many systems wanted to do this anyway, but the way uh, care was paid for in the private sector uh, was something of a barrier. But here in VHA, We have expanded our telehealth capabilities a great deal. Now, I don't want to overly sugarcoat this, right? There are a lot of issues that I think we still need to explore, like how easy is it for veterans with one or more sensory impairments, whether that's vision or hearing or something like that, to actually use existing technology? How can we become even more creative in terms of reaching veterans who live in pretty remote areas where broadband is not a common term that's used because there isn't any and so forth. But I think it's opened people's eyes to new possibilities. I even read recently that because of relaxation of some uh, very specific rules around using electronic health records, that some doctors are newly in love with their electronic records, which is an amazing, amazing thing to read. So the other thing that has been a great topic of interest in the innovation ecosystem is remote monitoring. You know, early on when some of our facilities Uh, experienced a huge demand for inpatient care, uh, more than they could possibly meet. Of course, they started looking at who might be discharged. Um, And with a new disease, that is a tough question, right? We've got no benchmark here to actually say, well, yes, X and Y have happened, so therefore this person should be just fine. So they would send veterans home with um, the little gadget. It's like a little clothespin. It doesn't even hurt like a clothespin that measures your oxygen level. Great. Um, 
but that probably wasn't enough. And I think that um, over time, we've learned a lot more about that. We have some research going on in that area, but we're, because of uh, the fact that the ecosystem actually reaches out to many partners, we're also hearing from many different people about how we could be getting ahead of the curve with remote monitoring, which I think is going to be very, very important. We don't know a whole lot yet about people who were discharged from the hospital. They didn't die in the hospital, so that's really great. But in terms of how they did after that, uh, we have a lot more to learn about that. And I think remote monitoring is going to be hugely important. I completely agree. And we're also seeing, um, you know, some of that data being used for folks who are diagnosed with coronavirus, but perhaps aren't, uh, you know, at the highly acute level right now, we're seeing that data being used to help predict their their level of acuity, uh, which is is interesting as we kind of come up with with this uh, knowledge, you know, how do we funnel it back uh, into the healthcare enterprise systematically. Um, Exactly. and I completely agree regarding telehealth. For, for me, it's actually been really pleasant because uh, I've participated in, in kind of building out some of this telehealth infrastructure over the past five to eight years, but we weren't getting the kind of uptake, you know, that you really w- would love to see, right? It, kind of, it was kind of more of an ancillary thing or, or we'll do it for this patient because they have a, I know they have a mobile phone and that means they're tech savvy. But now it's, uh, it's really becoming, it's breaking through into, into the norm. Uh, and that's exciting. Well, and if you think about what an impact it's had just on individual people with uh, COVID, um, and all of the stories, many out of New York City, but not only New York City, where um, clinicians, doctors, nurses, others would help patients who were doing um, very badly and probably would not make it actually FaceTime with family and friends, even though they had never done this before. They didn't know what FaceTime, what is what is this thing? But, you know, you'd see these people in all their protective equipment bringing in an iPad uh, so that they could say goodbye or let them know that it's touch and go and I don't know if I'll make it, but you got to know how much I love you and so forth. So I think we really have begun to see a big uh sea change here. I don't, and again, I don't want to overstate that. I think there are still clinicians who are getting used to this idea, but I'll tell you one way that I knew that we had really sort of crossed the Rubicon, if you will. Um, before the recent uh, explosion of uh, infections in the Southwest and so forth, we had started to walk through how do we begin to reopen some of our facilities. And one of our facilities in South Carolina, which was going to be the leading edge for their network, essentially presented their plan and said, you know what? Telehealth and Video Connect is working so well for primary care and mental health. We're not touching that. And, you know, as it turns out, they have their catchment area includes a lot of veterans who've got quite a drive, right? So not only do they have to be a little nervous about coming into our facility and maybe getting infected, there's a lot of touch points along the way. They didn't even, they weren't going to change that at all. They were going to be focusing on other areas where you really did need face-to-face contact. And I thought, aha, this is actually where we need to be going. But I think we've only begun to scratch the surface. I completely agree. And it's a very exciting time. It's, it's great to see this increased virtual access for veterans. And I'm excited about it too, as a, as a patient, uh, where the trends are going. Uh, 
All right. Uh, I have something that I usually uh, usually describe as a, a lightning round of conversations. Uh, so you can you can provide quick answers, or if if you want, you can dive in uh, more deeply, and we can we can dive into a subject. Are, are right. you ready? Are you ready? Yes. All right. Um, what's your favorite place uh, to be on the planet when you're not working to improve veterans' health care? My favorite place to be on the planet when I'm not here at work is Hawaii. Hawaii? Yes. Awesome. Um, we absolutely love it. It's a gorgeous geography. And when the first time we went, we thought we would go once and cross it off the list and then we'd be done. And we've totally, totally fell in love. And we go to Honolulu all the time. It is a multicultural culture that works. It's really, really exciting. And of course, obviously, uh, the physical uh, topography is just breathtaking. Awesome. I did not know you had such a strong connection to Hawaii. I do. Very nice. Um, What's the number of times you've served as leader of the Veterans Health Administration? Uh, Twice. (laughs) Do you know if anybody else can say that? I don't know. I think maybe not. Um, And the second time around was a big surprise to me and very different in some ways, but um, exciting both times. Okay. Um, Now, not respecting, you know, leading the VHA as well as the current job uh, you're in, what's the best job you've ever had? Wow, that's a great question because I've loved all of them. Um, Although my current position I think really, really comes close to that. I loved leading quality and safety before this. Um, But the idea of having an impact on the next generation through academic affiliations, as well as really cracking the code on translating research and best practices into part of the woodwork or wallpaper, um, that to me is usually exciting. And innovation for all that, how would I say this? It can be hard to separate out real innovation from uh, what might be delicately referred to as snake oil. Um, You know, offers so many potential solutions. And by definition, you're always with people who are trying to think of a different and better way to do things, which is enormously exciting. Thank you for that that answer. I, I kind of handed you a uh, potentially tricky question, so <laughs> you uh, definitely managed it. Um, so I know uh, late last year you traveled to Israel as part of a, a U.S. delegation along with the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. I was just curious, what was uh, maybe one of the most interesting things you you learned during that trip or or, or visited? Um, The trip to Israel was completely amazing, in part because the secretary knew the country very, very well, had first gone there as a child uh, with his dad, who was in the military, and helping them review uh, lessons learned, sort of an after-action review uh, from their big war in the late 60s. So that perspective alone was amazing. The history when you were there is amazing. But watching how they think about innovation was also wildly exciting. So we spent a good day at a rehab hospital um, where they had physical therapists and others 
working very, very closely with um, people from IT and designers to try to figure out how could they make their work more effective, which I thought was phenomenal. So for example, you see a physical therapist and they tell you to try to straighten out your knee, for example. And they might even take out a little protractor to make sure that the angle has actually increased, but they could make it far, far more precise than that. The other thing I learned, two other things. One was, as a small country, a lot of scientists, they are constantly scanning the world's literature for how other countries are treating specific problems. And I learned something which seemed to challenge um, what had become, I thought, biblically correct here. You know, because we have a lot of veterans with spinal cord injuries, the notion of using an exoskeleton to be able to walk even part of the day and be upright. I mean, first of all, it's a whole way of interacting with the world, which is exciting. Um, but it has profound positive impacts on the rest of your body, right? Even if you can be up for a short period once or twice a day, I'm talking five or 10 minutes, that starts to reverse some of the metabolic changes that the rest of your body experiences as a result of paralysis. So I just thought this was the way to go, right? As soon as we can get the technical details uh, worked out, everyone with a spinal cord injury who can't walk should be upright and using one of these uh, machines. And we've got long range trials in play right now, which I think will uh, give us very important insights. It turned out in Israel, they were a little more skeptical. And this was fascinating. They got the point loud and clear about reversing the metabolic changes, right? Um, but they also got that there were other ways to achieve that goal. So one of the um, machines they showed us was almost like an elliptical. If you could imagine it moving, you're sitting down and it's moving your legs for you. So you're getting the same benefit of exercise, the same positive impacts on the metabolic, uh, you know, changes that occur in your body without having to lug around what is now a 70 pound piece of gear. That's a lot of gear. So some people really like the exoskeleton and it's not exactly something that's commonplace to see right now. But for other people, it's a little bit too much. And they're actually quite well adapted to life in a wheelchair. But to be confident that they're in control of bladder and bowel function and so forth, that's a very big deal. So, you know, it was another way of looking at very uh, common shared problems. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, that, but not surprising. Uh, Israeli industry and, and their military is, is renowned uh, for being innovative. Um, and I, I was just curious. I'm sure it must have been very interesting to be there in an official capacity. Um, One other thing I'll mention is you know how important adaptive sports are to many veterans, uh, from skiing, even with special devices, to the golden age games, to the wheelchair games, and so forth. I had to go to Israel to see a competitive ballroom dancing in wheelchairs, which was quite amazing. And what was really uh, stunning about it was the male partner uh, in the you know finalist round that we saw 
actually tipped right over and fell on his head. And without missing a beat, the instructor came out and said, you know, asked him if he was okay, and then turned to us and said, this happens a lot, it's not a big deal, we just keep the music going, and <laughs> which I thought was amazing. There's a metaphor there for a lot of things, um, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> I'll leave it right right there. Um, what what do you think is the most pr- important personality trait uh, for being an innovator in healthcare? Curiosity and a willingness to share credit. You know, this is not about intellectual property. This is about how do we work together to actually get to a place, which is what makes the ecosystem so exciting. Awesome. Well, I, I think we can call that lightning round a, a wrap. That was really uh, really fun to uh, hear some of your thoughts on, on various things. Um, Dr. Clancy, I know you've uh, had a chance now to attend at least a couple of Innovation Experience events. Um, what can you tell everyone about uh, Innovation Experience coming up? Yeah, so I'm really, really looking forward to this year's innovation experience. Of course, like everyone else, I wish that we could all be together in person. Instead, we'll have a small number of people at the original site in D.C., all socially distanced and masked, of course, Um, but everyone else will be tuning in virtually. But given the collective experience we have with Zoom and other platforms in the past six months, I don't think, and knowing the people who come to this event, uh, I don't think that's going to change things at all. It will be different. We'll have to think of uh, issues ahead of time, but I believe that it's going to be actually one of the very best. So mark your calendars now, because uh, this is, I believe, one of the best conference uh, experiences I've ever experienced, right? PowerPoint presentations, you can do that at home. You don't need to be interacting, but there's so much energy that's generated as a result of the collaborative ideas and the collaborations that are ongoing where people are sharing results, even when they failed. Productive failures are actually really, really important, by which I mean we learn something from it. So mark your calendars now. This year is the first time we're going almost 100% virtual. I am completely confident that you will not think this a moment of this was wasted time. Awesome plug for IEX. Uh, you heard it from Dr. Clancy. Don't, don't miss it. Come join us from, from anywhere in the country. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and be sure to register for the VHA Innovation Experience this October 27th through 29th. If you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, essentially any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or woman. For more stories on veteran and veteran benefits, check our website va.gov forward slash innovation dash ecosystem and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and RallyPoint. No matter the social media, you can always find us with a blue check mark. And as always, the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. And we'll see you right here next time. Thanks for listening.